Thank you, uh, Lee. I appreciate all of your prayers and your encouragement. I appreciate all of you being present here tonight. Um, for tonight's basic, it's, uh, it's, it's fitting that we look at Christ, at uh, Jesus, and what I want to specifically mention are um, three titles that belong to Jesus. So this, uh, this message on basics has to do with the authority of Christ. One of the things that's said about Christ is that um, he has an authority. He has an authority that's been given to him by God. In the resurrection, he is exalted, and he's exalted to the right hand of God. But even before that, there are certain titles that are associated with Jesus that hint as to his identity, and they indicate who he is and why, um, why he should be listened to at all. Now, there's a lot of different titles for Jesus, but the three that I want to mention are Messiah, Son of God, and Son of Man. Right now, I think those three are very important. Take a look with me at Mark 11, um, Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verse 27. Now, put yourself in the place of uh, of the... the leaders in Jerusalem, the scribes, the, uh, the chief priests. And here, here comes this individual making these claims. Why should you listen to anything that he has to say? And I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Because he's, some of the things that he's saying challenges your deeply held assumptions about God, about God's people, about um, redemption and salvation. Some of the claims that this man from Nazareth makes and some of the the teaching that you've heard about and the power that he displays, it becomes very challenging, unsettling. And sometimes if if you're honest and you're in their place, it's threatening. It's threatening to your structure, the way things have always been. So why should you pay any attention to anything that he says. By what authority does he come and say the things that he says? And by the way, that authority has already been recognized before this moment. If you go all the way back to the first chapter, the people are amazed at Jesus because in his teaching, Mark says, he teaches as one with authority, not not like the scribes. I think the only thing we can make of that is is that they teach like those who do not have authority, which opens up another line of thought. Why would you listen to anyone teach who has no authority? I mean, everything that they say then comes about as, um, you know, they, they, they preface everything then with speaking from the standpoint of ignorance. I would like to say to you, why would you listen to any of that? But Jesus speaks with an authority that makes those words uh, important, significant, challenging, healing, good. So here's that, that moment where they question this. In verse 27 of Mark 11, they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? 
or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, implied in their question is not only their question about authority, but implied in that is that they have the authority to check everyone's authority. And one of the ways that you can gain control is to just whittle everybody else down. If you don't have authority and no one has authority, then nothing's ever going to get done. Sometimes in church, it's not the church leaders who uh, put the brakes on anything. It's just the people who don't want anything done. And as long as nobody's doing anything, then everything is fine. That's the way they control things here. Jesus says to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, then he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, well, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They're not committing, so he's not going to commit to them. Jesus is not being evasive and coy as much as he's saying, Any answer that I give them, they're not going to accept it anyway. Because they can't even settle something as simple as what they think about the baptism of John. They haven't weighed in on it, and their only reason for not weighing in on it is because they are concerned about what the people will think. Because honestly, they'd like to say, we don't recognize John's baptism. But that's an unpopular opinion, so we're not going to say that. So Jesus has us over a barrel, so we're going to be very careful. Jesus refuses to play that game. Later on, by the way, he will answer their question on authority, but we'll come to that in a second. Um... Let's take a look at the first title, to say that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. They're the same thing. What are we saying when, he sa- when we're saying that Jesus is the Messiah? Go back a few chapters to Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, um, Mark chapter 8, verse 27, there's a uh, very important question that Jesus asks his disciples. He asks them, who do the people say that I am? Now, catch it. The first question is, you tell me what the people are saying about me. They say, well, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others say one of the prophets. Okay, so if you're trying to, you're asking them, the people out there, how, what, what category do they put me in? How do they understand me? Well, we've got everything from John the Baptist, sort of the new wave, the forerunner. We've got Elijah, one of the old prophets who's going to return, who's, who's that uh, figure for the, the end times, and then some are saying maybe one of the other prophets. Well and good. Now he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Now, Matthew's got a longer version of this, but we won't go there just yet. After Peter says, you are the Christ, Jesus tells them to tell no one about it. Why would he do that? 
Why would, he, why would he silence them? I mean, Peter's got the answer right, doesn't he? You're the Christ. He does. But what he thinks a Christ is and what a Christ really is are not exactly the same thing. Peter's right that Jesus is the Christ, but what Peter thinks a Christ is supposed to do is not the same. You'll see that because later on, um, Jesus will talk, well, let's just read uh, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter is rebuking Jesus. On what grounds? Maybe because Peter thinks, I got the question right, you don't. I said you're the Christ, and Jesus, you don't seem to buy that. Because a Christ, a Messiah, would never suffer, would never be rejected, would never be killed, would ne- none of that would happen. Not in Peter's view of what a Messiah is. And Jesus has to say, you get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Messiah and Christ are the same thing. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. When they translated the the Old Testament into Greek uh, around the second century before Christ, the word Messiah gets translated as Christos in Greek. What both words mean is they mean the anointed one. And it's the anointing with oil that represents the investment of, of authority on someone. And so it usually refers to a king or to a leader, a prophet. Samuel, for example, is anointed. David is anointed. Um, This anointed one then becomes God's agent to enact God's will on earth. Later on, after the time of David and the kings, and they're going to restore the kingdom, Cyrus, the emperor of Persia, is referred to as a messiah. Because he's going to deliver God's people out of, out of exile. And he's going to bring them back. So he's God's agent to accomplish these things. So you have this idea of Messiah forming over these centuries. So that ultimately the, the perfect Messiah, the Messiah that's going to come is going to be the deliverer. He's going to be the one who unifies the 12 tribes of Israel. He's going to be the one who rebuilds the temple finally. He's going to be the one who returns the people to the promised land. All those promises that the people of God looked back to in their story, this Messiah is going to come in and he's going to fix everything that's broken. Now, does that mean that this Messiah might have to come in and uh, lean a little heavy on the world powers? Sure. And there's nothing wrong with that in their mind. Does that mean that this Messiah is going to come in and set up a kingdom on earth that will never uh, fall down? Sure. And that's, they think there's nothing wrong with that. People who are desperate and who are looking for hope in this world will attach themselves to such things. If you look at the movements going on right now in the world, sometimes in the, in the Middle East, sometimes uh, you know, anywhere around the world, people will attach themselves to some of the... Um, to questionable leaders or to leaders that inspire a certain kind of hope because they're desperate. Jesus knows that the people are desperate, that they are like sheep without a shepherd, but he doesn't want them to invest their hopes in what can be established in this world. 
He wants them to set their hopes on what heaven will do once and for all to fix all of the brokenness in the world. So he's got to teach them and guide them along the way. Because if he says Christ, it's right, it's correct, but they don't fully fathom what that means at this point. Um, in, in Matthew 16, uh, Matthew elaborates on this a little more than Mark does. In Matthew 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 12, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged them to tell no one that he was the Christ. Matthew shares more information about the moment and says that there was a discussion there, that, that Jesus is trying to tell them. You know, he's, he's giving words and, and more explanation to this emerging understanding of what the Christ is. Uh, but suffice it to say for now that what a Messiah was when Peter makes this proclamation and what they learn the Messiah is as they move forward takes on deeper significance. It's not just a political leader. It's not just a political leader empowered by God. It's not just a warrior king who's fueled by the armies and the power and strength of heaven. It is much more than that. And his kingdom is not one that's established in any land or territory, but it's a kingdom that is established, an authority that's established throughout all of creation, above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth. Um, so Messiah becomes a very important way of understanding who Christ is so that Christ becomes his title, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. Now, Let's go to the next title, uh, because you could have a Messiah who is not necessarily a son of God. They're not necessarily the same thing. If Cyrus, the emperor of Persia, is a Messiah, at the same time, you can't say that he's really God's son. He's a Persian. He's, he's not a descendant of Abraham. He's not a descendant of David. Um, he's a deliverer. But to say that he's the son of God, well, that's a bit of a stretch. Now, those two terms get fixed in our thinking quite often, and that's okay. But understand that there is um, there's a great claim being made by the Bible, by Scripture, by Paul, by the other biblical writers. When they take the idea of the Messiah, the Christ, and the son of God, and they fuse those together, they weld them together. That becomes very important because this Messiah is not just a monarch. I mean, as, as important as, as King David was, this Messiah is even greater than David. Uh, that, that gets borne out in Scripture. 
uh, this Messiah is, is not just the son of any earthly house or earthly family, but he is a child of the everlasting God. That becomes very important in understanding how his kingdom and his lordship works. Okay, there are some important texts here if we go back. One of those is Psalm 110. If you want to understand how the the New Testament writers are looking back at Old Testament scripture and trying to um, trying to figure out what the Old Testament says about Jesus, then, then, then Psalm 110 is where you definitely need to camp out. Uh, psalm 110 is a psalm, is an Old Testament scripture that the early church and the New Testament really like. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Here's this psalm that praises this this king, this Lord, who is also a priest. And the the early Christians unpacked this. They said, "This, this is describing Jesus. This is the best description of Jesus we've ever heard. And so it's out of that that, that that certain lines from that psalm become informative. Um, take a look. Let's stick with the gospel of Mark for a little while. Take a look at, um, no, I'll tell you what, let's jump over to Luke. Take a look at Luke uh, 20, verse 41. In the gospel of Luke, chapter 20, verse 41, uh, this question again of who Jesus is comes up. This time it's the Sadducees, and they're a tough crowd to convince because at least the Pharisees are, and the scribes and the elders, at least they've got some investment in this. The Sadducees are, they're, they, they've really, they're, they're really nothing left but form and outward function, and their, their, whole, their whole faith is really in question, but uh, they're not buying into the idea of the resurrection. They're not, they're not accepting a lot of this. Um, and they certainly don't favor the idea that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. In verse 41, Christ is speaking to them and he says, How can they say, and here he's talking about scripture, in David, that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the question is, how can the Messiah be the son of David? He's saying that the Messiah is more than just the son of David. The Messiah then would be the son of God. It goes much deeper than that. The, uh, the confession that Jesus Christ is the son of God, and, and we do this at every baptism. We ask people, 
you know, uh, do you believe that Jesus is who he said he is? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Why is that so important? Why do we favor that one? Because Son of God speaks to the fact that, that Jesus is greater than any of these other categories. It's great that we had the priest. It's great that we had Abraham. It's great that we had David. But Jesus follows in their path, but at the same time, he predates all of that. He comes before them as well. So he's a priest, just like the line of priests that came from Aaron, but he's also like Melchizedek, who has no lineage, who's sort of an eternal priest, who, who's just sort of out there. He's the outlier priest. And it's the same way with uh, Christ's authority. Yes, he's a descendant of David, but he's more than a descendant of David. So this idea that he is directly accountable and directly connected to God himself becomes an important confession. Mark's gospel, I love the way Mark does this in his gospel. In Mark's gospel, chapter 1, you have moments where the one who declares that Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, if you're going to look for someone who's going to testify to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, who are you going to bring in to testify to that? Well, you know, I guess people who are authorities on lineage, people who are authorities on uh, what the Son of God is supposed to be. But you know, the best person you could get to come in and testify to that would be God the Father. Because if God the Father claims him as his son, that's his son. And that's exactly what happens in Mark's gospel. Uh, at some very important moments. Right there in the beginning, Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. God is claiming Jesus as his Son at that moment of the baptism. And, and, and the other Gospels have a version of that as well. Uh, Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. The, uh, the disciples get to see the glory of God displayed in Jesus. Which, by the way, is, is really interesting because when they see the glory of the risen Jesus, how do they recognize that? They recognize it because they've already seen it on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, that, that's for another time. But anyway, here, here this wonderful moment where uh, Peter, James, and John go with Jesus up to the mountain. And uh, he's transfigured before them. His clothes become radiant, intensely white. And there appeared to them, uh, with them, Elijah and Moses. Now, that, that Elijah and Moses represent the law and the prophets. Here they are. I mean, if you want two figures from the, 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 the history of Israel, the story of Israel, who represent everything, it's Elijah and Moses. They are the George Washington and the Abraham Lincoln of the history of Israel, all right? The two key figures. And they represent everything. And they are speaking to Jesus. There's affirmation. Uh, Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And I love the way Mark uh, describes this. For he didn't know what to say. It's like, it's like poor Peter. 
he just had to say something, but we don't really, you know, I mean, he decides to have a business meeting and, you know, look into the budget to find out if they can build a temple. He was scared. So, you know, Mark's giving him a, a bit of a break. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly they looked around, and they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. You don't need Elijah and Moses anymore. Elijah and Moses are important. But now Jesus is the last word. And furthermore, there's that voice from heaven again, claiming Jesus as his son. Listen to him, he says. I think it's interesting that in Mark's gospel, towards the end in chapter 15, when Jesus uh, dies on the cross and he utters a loud cry and he breathed his last, in Mark 15, 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Here now, the confession that he's the son of God comes from the unlikeliest of places. It comes from one who's an outsider, one who, one who should not even acknowledge this one who wouldn't even accept this I mean for that centurion to even say that is treasonous in a way but he can't deny it so he has his confession that this is the son of God so you've got the Messiah he's the Christ he's the son of God but now he's also the son of man what is the son of man There's one explanation that the son of man simply means human being, son of a person. Okay, and it could be used that way. It's used that way in some of the Old Testament scriptures. But in time, son of man becomes a really interesting title. You see it in Daniel 7, where there is one like the son of man who uh, comes back. But here's here's a, a, a few things about the Son of Man, and we don't have time to go into the whole history of the, of the Son of Man and what the Son of Man means, but there's always something interesting about the Son of Man. The Son of Man is the one who specifically comes from heaven and is often seen coming from heaven in glory. In, in, in Daniel's vision, he comes and he's there with the Ancient of Days. So this Son of Man is a figure who rules alongside God himself. The Son of Man is also one who suffers on account of doing what's right. And the Son of Man is also one who will judge all things. He will have the final say on the, uh, on the, on the righteousness of all things. Jesus, in Mark's Gospel seems to be going to the idea of the Son of Man because if they, if they get hung up on the idea of Messiah and start thinking all the wrong things, he wants them to understand that he is also the Son of Man. And maybe that's a new category through which they can access Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. That they can start to understand his authority in that way. Because when they would hear Son of Man, they would instantly hear, okay... That's a heavenly figure. That's a heavenly individual. 
but it's, it, it's not as crystallized in their thinking as the Christ. And so he has room to explain some things. So notice if we go back to our text in Mark chapter 8. When Peter says, you are the Christ, and Jesus strictly charges them to tell no one about him, verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, but after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Skip over to Mark chapter 9. Uh, when they go through Galilee. He didn't want anyone to know he was there, for he was teaching his disciples, and he was saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. It's almost as if, you know, they're, they're, when it comes to Christ and Son of God, their buckets are full. You, they've got to empty those buckets before they can put anything else in there. Sometimes we have to empty our minds if we're going to be filled up with real knowledge because we've got so much other stuff up there that unless we empty it, we can't contain it. But with Son of Man, maybe they have a different bucket. They have a different category that he can start to tell them, look, some things are going to happen. And you will think without, you know, if you, if you understand this from the worldly point of view, as he says to Peter, if you're thinking the things of men, not the things of God, then you're going to think, look at this and you're going to think failure, which is what they do at first. But he's prepping them because if they can see it as a son of man situation, then maybe they can understand, wait, there's more to this Jesus. Yes, he's Messiah. Yes, he's son of God. But he's something else also. And this is where his authority derives from. Because the Son of Man gets his authority from the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man gets his authority from the one who raises him from the dead. And it's very important that in every case the Son of Man is described as the one who will be raised again after three days. He's exalted. He's given the name that is above every name. Uh, that's Philippians chapter 2. Now, in Mark 14... And by the way, there's some who say that, you know, well, Jesus says he's the son of man, but he's never really, you know, he ne you hear this out there sometimes that, and by the way, you're going to hear it a lot right now during this Easter season. You're going to see a, a lot of the documentaries and Jesus never claimed that Jesus never claimed. Really? Okay. Uh, take a look at uh, 14 and um, Jesus is arrested. He's on trial. Verse 60 of chapter 14, the high priest stood up in the, in the midst of them and he asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and he made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, point blank question, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one, the son of God? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And with that, the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. So, yes, Jesus claims that he is the Christ. Jesus claims that he's the Son of God. But... It's almost like he says, I see that, and I'm going, to, I'm going to raise you. I'm going to call you out on that, and I am telling you I am also the Son of Man. Because 
you will have me testify that I'm the Christ. You will have me testify that I'm the Son of God. And it won't make any difference to you, and you'll declare it as blasphemy. But as the Son of Man, I will be raised, and you'll see me at the right hand of power. And I'll be coming in the clouds. There's that one who comes to judge. Jesus is saying, you can't escape this. This is God's truth. This is God's reality. This is why I think that these uh, three terms become very important. And it's right there in that moment when Jesus is on trial that, that all three of those come together. The confession that he's Christ, the confession that he's the Son of God, and the confession that he is uh, the Son of Man and what that means and what that adds to it. Um, Luke 21, 25 um, has the idea of the coming of the Son of Man, that Jesus is um, speaking about what is to come. And, and here the Son of Man has to do with Jesus in his return, which has yet to happen. He said, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is, to, is coming on the world. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and with great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, run, cower in fear, go grab your gun and head to your hidey hole. No, that's not what he says. He says, now when these things take place, straighten up, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So don't buy into it when you have these so-called Christian leaders telling us all we need to be shaking and trembling in our boots. No. When the Son of Man comes back, everybody else is frightened, but we know what's going on. The Son of Man's coming to set things right. Our redemption is drawing near. So the Son of Man becomes this, this end-time figure who shows up. And we'll get back to the Son of Man when we look at the basics of what is to come. Okay, but that, that's a ways off yet. But it's also a message of hope, not just fear. Because he's coming with power, he's coming with glory, and he's going to fix everything the way it was always meant to be. Well, thank you for your attention tonight, and uh, we're going to sing this song. If you need to partake of communion, that's been prepared for you in room 100. And uh, I would say then, other, other than that, do what Jesus says. You know, we've got a lot to be afraid of, right? Okay, well, lift your head, raise your head, and just know that your redemption is drawing near. So let's stand, let's sing together, and then we'll be dismissed in prayer.